This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. In today's episode, the big 2-9, we're going to cover a bunch of different topics. Number one, unfortunately, there was a death of a technician falling from a turbine. So we'll chat a little bit about the implications for the industry. Uh, there was also another uh, broken blade on a wind farm out in Illinois. And uh, we're also going to chat a little bit about some, I guess there's been some a decrease in lightning recorded in the lower 48 states here in the US. So Alan's going to talk about why that might be happening and, and some of the implications there. But obviously in our first segment here, you know, there's uh, some of the the pushback against wind energy is stuff like this, you know, safety, worker safety, uh, broken wind farm blades and the safety concerns that they, they hold. So that's, you know, as much as wind energy is an important, uh, green, seemingly good for the environment and good for everyone. There's always some downsides that, uh, you know, PR and, and we have to kind of cover. So in our engineering segment, we're gonna talk about the Halliate X turbine being upgraded from 12 to 13 megawatts. And we'll chat a bunch about y'all misalignment and the power reduction that that causes and how we can kind of uh, solve that issue. So now let's talk first about the the worker death. So unfortunately, a 39 year old man fell to his death at the Langford Wind Project in Texas. Um, God, just an awful thing. But I mean, what what are the implications here for the for the industry? I mean, is this is this going to have um, more regulations coming. I mean, is this an, an OSHA thing or definitely OSHA? Definitely OSHA will be on top of it, and local regulators will be all over it, uh, and trying to figure out exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and usually, when you're going up on a on a turbine, you're not by yourself. Uh, so s- there's probably some witnesses to what happened. I, I'd be surprised. Uh, with as much safety equipment and and gear that are provided to the technicians that it was a you know gear problem but maybe it was um but there seems to be if you if you're around the wind turbine industry much at all you realize that there's paramount emphasis put on safety gear uh, falling safety protocols check double check you're just working around electricity and mm-hmm. you're working at height out at height places and it it is so you got the steel toe twos you got the harnessing you're clipping in everywhere uh you've got the hard hat on safety glasses no joke it's a serious place and you're doing serious work so i'm shocked at at what has happened here particularly up tower but hopefully everybody doubles down and takes a quick pause and a lot of places We'll take a safety pause and 
just refreshed everybody. Hey, let's make sure we're clipping in. Hey, let's make sure we're on the harness. Hey, let's make sure we've checked out our safety gear before we start climbing uh, as just an, another added measure. Uh, so hopefully it, it's used for the benefit of the industry, right? That this yeah. unfortunate loss can be can be have some upside to it. Yeah, I'm sure with anything, as you get you know more and more experience, you just you're you know you go through your checks and all that stuff, but it's can sometimes become routine. And when things start to feel routine, sometimes things get get missed. And again, we don't know what happened yeah. here, but you're right. Hopefully, it just rein, reinstalls that sense of urgency and extra checks and and a really big focus on safety because that's yeah, it's yeah. it's re- really rough. So in uh, McLean County, McLean County, Illinois, where I actually lived for quite a long time, um, a, another turbine blade snapped and pretty incredible photo of that same thing, like pretty, pretty close to the root. It looks like there's maybe 20 feet left on the one blade. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of them out there in McLean County. There's a really, really big wind farm out there. Um, So again, same thing here. When there's blade snapping, especially in a, a a few at this in a relatively short span of time, because we talked about the one in Ohio recently. I mean, is this bringing a lot of bad PR to the industry? Because these are kind of the big things. Like, are these things safe? These huge blades hurtling around at 180 miles per hour, they snap off. Does somebody get hurt? Um, what are your thoughts here? I think we're going to have to relook and see what's going on with, with the turbine blades, right? We shouldn't have turbine blades breaking. Obviously, anybody who designs them or manufactures them is thinking the same thing. What's going on? We're, we're, are we? What are we missing? What mm-hmm. is happening either in the design? Is there some design issue, which is where you usually start at? Is it a design issue? Make sure we haven't forgotten something or, or miscalculated a, a load or is it somewhere in the in the manufacturing that we've uh, forgotten to do something or over you know there's a, there's a million different things with the kind of composites which would uh, degrade the composite where you could have issues like this and then, then the quality system right so you get you have a checks and balances setup where uh, a worker does a certain feature somebody else checks it off and there's other uh, inspections that are done to make sure that the quality of blade is what you think that it is and it matches the design. And yet when we're out in the field, all of a sudden we're having these sort of blade breakages. And it could be like we talked about uh, last week with DNVGL that you just have a a severe wind event that causes it to overload. And it's not designed Mm -hmm. for those when when speeds fine, but it does just (laughs) the I, I was watching some interactions at a basically it was a county meeting in Iowa talking about wind turbines and they had a blade break. And they're putting restrictions on turbines. They're limiting the number of turbines they could have in the county. They were discussing how far how far apart they had to be had to be. Uh, so when a blade breaks, it provides the impetus, and, and I guess rightly so, that the the community is going to then put restrictions on them. So if that blade didn't break, there'd be less restrictions and probably be more wind turbines. But uh, when you have a blade break it really changes the dynamic to all right not only are the the turbines making wind noise flickering light got it but now it's gone from sort of a nuisance question to when people don't think it's a nuisance people take that seriously i'm not saying it's not serious but it's not as serious as a blade breaking off and hurting somebody so when it gets to that level you know the, the the gloves get taken off and then you got into a real fight 
and the and the operators and and owners of those of those sites have a lot to deal with, and it becomes a sort of this public relations thing. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, in this situation, yeah, this was the the most recent was actually the third blade in this farm. So it was a fifty seven turbine farm, uh, the Bright Stockwind farm, and so there were two two failures on September seventh. This is now the third, so that's definitely becoming a pattern, right? They think there might have been lightning right. damage, but three blades. These are all manufactured by Vestas. So they're trying to get to the bottom of it. And you mm-hmm. wonder if there's some sort of quality control issue, maybe. Not maybe. Sure. And maybe it's some lightning issue. Maybe it's something that we haven't thought of, but we're going to get a lot of people looking at it. And that just takes up an insurmountable amount of time to, to do those uh, post-mortems on damaged blades. We'll hopefully get to the end of it. And we've talked about lightning strike damage, but it's not clear. I mean, what's the mechanism between a lightning strike snapping a blade? I mean, it's just putting a big enough puncture in a really important, unfortunate, unlucky spot. And then just the stresses of the blade and the incredible speeds, Mm -hmm. what snaps it apart. That's pretty much it. Yeah. You get a, if you think of it in terms of metal, composites work differently a little bit, but it's easier to think about taking a piece of metal and flexing it, flexing it, flexing it, and you get these fatigue cracks, right? You eventually, you, gotcha. uh, mm-hmm. you, 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 you wear it out. It doesn't happen exactly that way in composites, but if you damage it and change the way that it carries the load, you can get these weak points and it'll eventually break like anything else would break. Uh, and, and that's the hard thing to think about is, is it something, and when you have three like this or, or more than one, let's just start off. If it's more than one, you start to think manufacturing defect. That mm-hmm. they were probably manufactured roughly the same time, came out of the same manufacturing site, and there's a lot of manufacturing sites. It was a, just an oversight or a materials thing or a cure temperature or a myriad of other things. And so what happens is they start grabbing engineers and say, go back through, figure out what happened, and come back to the report, which is what they do. And then you try to figure out if it's... Uh, what the root cause is and trying to fix it because the as an engineer your worst thought is oh man i hope this does not extend beyond the blades that we've already had this issue with or do i have to go out and inspect a bunch of the blades because we've notified we've we've identified a particular variable that we haven't controlled as well as we thought or we had a bad piece of instrumentation and that carried on to to multiple blades and multiple sites and like we're getting on an airplane and go check all these things out. That's your worst case scenario for an engineer. Right? Your best case scenario is it's a one-off, just a fluke, a random fluke. Wind's too strong, broke it. Okay, we can deal with that. It's the, oops, I made a mistake in the manufacturing area that really gets you. So decrease in lightning in the lower 48 states. The National Lightning Detection Network found a 32% decrease in lightning counts in May and June of 2020. So why would this be, Alan? What's going on with uh, with the U.S. right now? Okay, so does this tie into my to my uh, paper from India saying during COVID there was less lightning strikes? Also, it's about the same time frame. What, mm-hmm. what, what year what, was it? 2020 spring of 2020 this was 2020 uh, yeah i, I don't okay. remember the india one but yeah it sounds right yeah that was that was that was 2020 also so there's a big discussion going on about pollutants in the air and changing lightning strike frequency because 
when you break down air, if you change, basically change the, the breakdown, uh, the amount of voltage it takes to break down the air and ionize the air, if you change that by adding particles to it, which is what pollution in theory is, you can actually change the breakdown voltage. And are you changing the breakdown voltage where you're getting more repeated strikes uh, because it's just easier to do? And th so then now there's multiple papers are saying the same thing as when the economy is essentially shut down and you're not driving as much cars, you're not being driven as much, you're not burning as much fossil fuels, you're not doing a bunch of other things, you're not flying as much, name it. Uh, now, maybe we change the essentially the air resistance. And if we are, that's a fascinating discovery because this yeah. is, I've been trying to make this point for a long time. Like things are changing, but we're not necessarily, it's, it may be climate change, it may be other, a myriad of factors. We just don't know. But when we have these odd events happen like COVID or 9 11, even when, when the United States shut down air travel for a while and there was no contrails in the sky, they saw temperature changes, right? And so you're like, man. You can actually measure some of these things when society has wide shifts, and sometimes it's the best time to to test theories. Is that if if we're decreasing the amount of of uh, uh, particles we're shoving into the air, does that change the amount of lightning strikes? Yeah, <laughs> I think the answer is yes, but it's actually decreasing them, making the air more resistive in some sense. And that is fascinating. So we are having an influence on the number of lightning strikes. That's what it looks like. But I'm not sure the, the answer is not why. It, they're just noticing there's a cor correlation is not causation. Is that what my daughter always tells me? Yeah. <laughs> From, mm -hmm. Right? Isn't that the phrase going around? Correlation, not causation. So we have a correlation, but we don't have a causation yet. So we need to get to the causation part because I'm interested in that because I think it also changes the way lightning strikes happen on other things like aircraft that would explain uh, things that I think are changing a little bit than what we have previously done. So uh, this is the, our conversation with uh, the wonderful people at DMVGL, which is uh, how are we predicting how many lightning strikes are going to occur and is our models need to be constantly updated because of changes that are happening in the atmosphere? And are we using data from the 1920s and 30s to predict what happens in 2020? Yes, we are. But is that data still valid? Because are the the uh, sort of the resistance of the air, which does matter, was different in the 20s and 30s than it is now because society's changed and we the things we're putting in the air are different. So maybe we're seeing a different response. That would hmm. be fascinating to know. Really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So you might need a, you know, if you have a wind farm in Los Angeles, you know, obviously you wouldn't have a wind farm in Los Angeles, but if you did, <laughs> no. the lightning environment would be a lot different because it's just how smoggy it is potentially versus yeah. like somewhere like Montana where do they even have cars in Montana? They just run around in, on oxen and, and whatnot. <laughs> so, oh, I've been to Montana. There are cars there. Yes. There are love, people there. Love, lovely place. Very blue sky. It's a beautiful place. Much, much, better, much better air. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Montana is beautiful. So. But I, I, this is my question about some of the, the, the fires that happened in the Northern California and that, oh, we had this, we had a, a huge number of lightning strikes. Well, which came first? I mean, obviously there were storms, which are unusual, but did one, does, does a previous fire encourage more lightning strikes? There's the soot and the crud that gets thrown up in the, in the ash that gets thrown up in the air, and that can go thousands of, 
of feet up into the air. Is that changing subsequent lightning strikes? Are we getting more subsequent lightning strikes because of the fires that already exist? I, I think the answer is yes. And mm. in Northern California, there's a lot of wind turbines uh, just to the east of Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So if you know your Northern California uh, uh layout right so you, everything's kind of pushed to the coast but as you get further east that's where the wine country is it's now on fire but there's a lot of wind turbines up in that area and i kind of wonder if they're seeing more strikes up there because of the fires and this and the contamination in the air and it, it, hopefully someone's doing a research paper on it and going to publish that because that would be really interesting to know as we go forward making requirements and specs and things about the number of strikes that were taken on wind turbines is it changing over time, and do we need to address it in the way we're designing the wind turbines today? I think the answer is yes, but we still need more data and uh, more study to figure that out. All right, in our engineering segment today, we are going to chat first about the GE Halliate X which is the second most powerful wind turbine in the world next to the poorly named Siemens Gamesa 1422 <laughs> triple D, right? Um, DD. So we like the we like the Halliate X here a lot uh, on, on uptime. It's a great it's a, name. It's a, great, it's, a, it's a cool name. It's a cool name. But they took the prototype, which was 12 megawatts, and they're mm -hmm. developing it into a 13 megawatt variant to try to catch up because they're sad, um, you know, not quite 14, but you know, they've had a, a pretty big order of these. Uh, the Dogger Bank wind farm is going to feature 95 of these. So crazy amount of power output. But wow. the question here is how do they operate a wind turbine? Cause they, it sounds like they're not changing the rotor diameter or the blade length, the, the same blades mm -hmm. on the 13 megawatt as the 12 megawatt. So mm -hmm. Alan, is it vortex generators? Is it, you know, trailing edge serrations? Is it something else? Is it a generator thing? How are they getting, how are they squeezing another megawatt out of it? Well, I think it's mostly a generator uh, issue that they've upgraded the generator. So it would be very similar to um, on a car, if you bought a production vehicle from General Motors, uh, say you had a Corvette, right? And that 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 motor is set to produce, let's just say, it's five hundred horsepower. Can you get five hundred and ten horsepower out of it? Yeah, you you probably can. It was with the right tuning and the right um, uh, probably add-on pieces, you can actually get more horsepower out of that motor. People do that all the time. And on generators, it's sort of a similar thing. If you can design it to or, or, or test it at a higher level than what it was previously tested for and show that it can withstand the years of abuse it's going to take, you can actually increase its rated output, which is tends to be what happens. Now, let's think of an engineer uh, sitting at their desk designing a generator. What's the first thing that goes through your head? Don't let it explode. Don't let it fail. So everything you mm -hmm. do to that generator is like, is is not over designed on on purpose but it is over designed on purpose because that's that that's the engineering everybody is to provide a little more margin because you don't want your stuff to break yeah and then when you get it out there in the field you're like and you flip it on like wow it, it's working pretty well it seems to be pretty stable it doesn't seem to have a lot of temperature variation it seems to be producing the power no sweat 
well, let's see what it can really do, right? And that's what that's what's happening. You're you're seeing how much that generator can take, and if it if it can and they qualify it for a higher rated output, you can just use it because essentially what you're doing is you're taking that little extra safety margin that the engineer has thrown into the design, and you're taking advantage of it to produce more power. That that that's essentially what happens there. Uh, the engineers. If you ever have a conversation with an engineer, because it happens on on jet engines all the time, uh, where the the jet engine is rated for say it's a thousand pounds of thrust, and every aircraft designer knows that you're never going to make weight on an airplane. You got to eat more thrust, and sure enough, you know they can turn up the thrust by ten percent. How did that happen? Because it had the ability to do it when they made it. It's just going to cause a little more wear and tear. And it's going to decrease the lifetime slightly, but mm-hmm. you may not even care. And I think what's happening here is a very similar thing, is that they're basically using the same basic wind turbine. The cell's the same. Sounds like the, the blade diameters are the same. They just upgraded the or rated the generator for a higher output, which is a smart thing to do because you're in this competition. GE is in this competition with Siemens Gamesa for these huge wind turbines. And like we talked about before, setting the marketplace is a big deal. Uh, and that's why the naming convention matters is the Halley mm-hmm. 8 versus the whatever DD Siemens. SG 14222 Yeah. Going from the uh, the, the, the Halley 12 megawatt to the Halley 13 versus the Siemens Gamesa 14 megawatt, it's all about market positioning and owning that space. And as wind turbines get larger and larger, you want to be the first one in that market. You want to set the criteria for everybody else. You want everybody to be looking up to you all the time. So that's why there's this race to get to the large wind turbines offshore, because that's where the future is in wind turbines. That's where the money is in wind turbines, is these large offshore wind turbines. So it's it's going to be uh, a battle over the next year or two as GE and Siemens Gamesa duke it out. Yeah, so speaking of squeezing out power output from these wind turbines, uh, yaw misalignment is potentially a pretty big problem. So, Alan, can you take us through what yaw misalignment is, why it's important, and, I mean, this could be a really big power loss if it's not caught and kept in check. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, so you want the wind turbine, ideally, to be pointing directly into the wind, Right, but you really only have one measurement for that, which is the wind vane, and make sure that wind vane is uh, quasi aligned with the hub, so to speak. Like your your readings are correct. Um, so there's a couple ways you can can mess that up. So if the if the wind vane has been bent over, like uh, you had an eagle land on it <laughs> and kick it over, or it's been hit by a, a technician, bumped by a technician, or rotated slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you got a, a kind of a cross thing going on where the direction of the wind turbine is and the wind vane zero spot is not aligned. So the wind turbine will be slightly askew all the time. That's a bad thing because you're not maximizing pa- power output. So you, you want to make sure you're constantly pointing in the right direction and uh the the issue gets to be is you can't really tell it all that well uh, because you don't have a you don't have a an independent unless you have a met tower you really don't know what direction the wind is coming in all you're reading is what's going on on your anemometer which is wind speed and your wind vane which are all mounted behind the blades by the way so if you watch um uh, wind turbines and the, and the wind vanes. The wind vanes are constantly 
bumping left to right because there's a blade running in front of them. So the blade blocks the wind and the pushes the wind one way or the other. So the anemometers are constantly kind of bouncing left to right. And so what it's trying to do is average out to zero. Like you're always uh, pointing in the wind. So it's always to the left and always to the right the same amount of time roughly. And then boom, you're there. And if you're not quite there or you got some weird thing happen with the anim- with the wind vane or anemometer for that matter, that you can not be at peak power. And operators hate that because you're just losing money. You need to be a peak power all the time. So uh, I know it sounds simplistic, but wind turbines are not complicated animals on the way their control systems work. There isn't like there's a lot of redundancy there. And I think the way that they're detecting issues is because they have, say, there's 50 wind turbines on a farm. If 49 of them are all pointed in this general direction and wind number turbine number 50 is pointed five degrees off the other way, you go, huh, weird, huh? And I think that's how they're trying to track it is just by quantity, not by individual turbines and and noticing what's wrong with a particular turbine. But it is one of those things to check. It's just like everything else in a wind turbine. Anytime you're trying to squeeze efficiency out, squeeze power out of a a generating piece of equipment, everything matters. And Mm -hmm. so pointing this thing into the wind is huge and making sure that we're properly aligned all the time. So besides hardware causes, there could be some some software causes that, right? So mm-hmm. potentially the yep. nacelle transfer function or just the, the parameter yep. set, you know, in the Yeah, in there the could be an offset put in. Yeah, you can put offsets in like in a, <laughs> it's always what's always the first fix, change the software, right? So there's always mm-hmm. little uh, variables you can adjust to kind of tweak a system in much like a, an engine uh, a, a gasoline powered engine and you can change the parameters add a little, a little bit of compensation take a little bit of compensation out uh change the control loops a little bit to track it better because you, you think about it you don't want you, you, there's a lot going on on a wind turbine you don't want the wind turbine constantly searching left and right for the wind right you want it to be stable and just pointed generally in the, in the right wind direction all the time so there's a little bit of a uh, feedback loop on, on not making the turbine bounce around all the time. And also, it, it you don't want it to be constantly spinning in the same direction. So if it's, it's if it's constantly moving counterclockwise, it'll you don't want that because there's cables inside of it which will, will break. So you want to track the number of times it's circled around and then unwind it. Uh, but so all these systems, unlike a car or a train or an airplane, which tend to have dual redundant, triple redundant systems, wind turbines don't tend to be that way. They tend to rely on the number of wind turbines to try to provide that feedback loop, that outside feedback to see if things are off. So it just seems like it's easier then for it to be off and no one necessarily catch it. And there's no redundancy to to immediately fix it. Yeah, I, I think it's up to the technicians to monitor that. Uh, that aspect of it, and also the the people that are monitoring the power output, because uh, uh, you know the 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 power the power output is is provided via data link to laptops across the country or the world, so they're constantly monitoring the power output. And in theory, you you think you'd be able to detect uh, where one wind turbine is slightly off or another, but as as pointed out by DMVGL and Alex last week was. Unless you have an independent measurement of wind, you really don't know. So it's it, it takes more deduction, and you have to be a kind of a sleuth out there to figure out where you're losing power, where you're losing money, and that's where where it comes the detective part comes in. 
All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.